I'm Janine Plummer with Haunted Texas and Beyond. This podcast was made in 2010 and is episode number two in a three-part series called Haunted Texas. Episode one was about a freedman's colony in Blanco, Texas. This episode is about a German immigrant family who settled in Castell, Texas. And in this case, the ghosts that remain in their family home. I'm Janine Plummer, and I own Austin Ghost Tours, and I'm here to tell you there's no such thing as ghosts as you believe them to be. I've listened to thousands of ghost stories, and in every rural town in America, there is a house that is believed to be haunted, especially if that town is of immigrant origins. I'd be laying there, and you would hear strange noises. Sometimes things would move around, and I didn't remember moving them in my room. They just always stared at you with a certain glare. The couch felt like it was bouncing. Behind feeling vibration. I'm experiencing this thing and I can't explain it. Haunted Texas travels across Texas to uncover the truth behind unexplainable events and explore the history of the land and its people. Today, we're in Castell, Texas. Between October 1845 and April 1846, 36 ships brought 5,257 immigrants to Texas. Cholera, typhoid and spinal meningitis epidemics swept through the coastal encampments again and again and were carried to the towns along the trails inland. In all, a third of the Germans succumbed to disease, exposure, dehydration, and accidents en route to New Germany. Several minor settlements were founded on the Fisher-Miller land grant. Only one exists today, Castell and the ancestors of one of the original German settlers still remain, the Leifeste family. In 1842, Germany was a land of territories, a cluster of regions governed by men and women of noble blood who maintained supreme independent authority over the land and the people who lived on it. This was the timeless system known as feudalism. The transition away from feudalism in Europe was imperative as the Industrial Revolution was well underway. In Germany, such change was slow to come. The country's elite few were divided. Some believed that the only way to preserve the nobility in a changing world was to become a monarchy like France and England. The other half, the conservatives, strongly disagreed. They refused to accept change. Twenty-one princes, dukes, counts, and barons gathered at Biebrich Palace in the Hesse region of Germany on April 20, 1842, and created a business partnership called the Society of Noblemen and founded the Society for the Protection of German Immigrants in Texas. My name is Kevin Klaus. I'm with the Texas General Land Office. And what I've got here are documents relating to the German immigration movement. In Germany in 1842, you've got a group of 21 German nobles that came together and formed the Adelsverein, or Society for the Protection of German Immigrants. They had this idea of bringing settlers into Texas. 
To learn more about these settlers, Haunted Texas traveled to the German Texan Heritage Society. There we met with board member and program director Helga von Schweinitz. The Adelsverein, these noblemen in charge, had all the good intentions and great ideas for the future. They wanted to help poor people get settled somewhere. They also thought uh, that way the society for the protection might make a lot of money eventually because of the new trade that would start with Germany. So they had the best intentions and a lot of people of nobility all over joined as founding members, but they had no experience with finances. They advertised for a one-time payment of $240 per family or $120 per single male the society would provide transportation to the Texas colony. A log house, farming tools, and numerous public buildings would be constructed, such as schools and churches. The immigrant family would receive 320 acres of land, or 160 acres if a single male. The society expected to dictate every decision from the castle, but it took eight weeks for a letter to travel from Germany to the Texas coast. This delay in communication was one of the contributing factors that led to the tragedy that was about to unfold. Randy Lifeste is a descendant of the original Lifeste family who came to Texas in the 1800s. Since I've had it as a bed and breakfast, I've had eight or ten people come to me after they stayed there and they said, there's things happening in your house. I said, don't worry about it, they're all good ones. And two ladies stayed there, and it was in the wintertime, and it was really cold. And they had a fire in the fireplace, but then the fire burned down, and the next morning they came over and told me, they said, we had some things sitting on the mantel, you know, some wine glasses and things. Well, the next morning they were in the kitchen. We didn't put them there. There are some stories around that pickup truck. Yeah. Do you know what they are? Well, it's related to my father. He definitely believed in ghosts and things like that. And he said he would go out there sometimes in the middle of the night and he thought he saw his father sitting in the pickup. We're the repository of all the original land grants. It's estimated we have 35 and a half million pieces of paper of the land grant files and 45,000 maps and sketches. Here is a Fisher Miller transfer for a Heinrich Lifesti. So this shows that Heinrich Leifesti was aboard the Gerhard Hermann. He was sailing from Bremen, arrived at the port of Galveston on the 20th day of February of 1846. When these settlers were, were coming over, you're dealing with disease, hardship, starvation. Many of the people died either on board the ship or once they reached Texas. Now, once they land either at Indianola or Galveston, they were not set up to support all of these immigrants over 4,000 immigrants were stranded on the coast. They made promises that they would help with transportation inland, setting up schools, setting up hospitals. Much of this never happened. While at the German Texan Heritage Society, we met historian, storyteller, and third-generation Texan, Warren Friedrich. Most of the Germans who came into Texas left from German ports or from Amsterdam arrived in Galveston. Germans were supposed to have wagons and stock which would take them up into the interior. The problem was that in 1846, the United States went to war with Mexico and everything that had been promised to the Germans was being used by the military. 
People were sick and there was a lot of rain and swamps and diseases. So it was a, a desperate situation. As they would make their way up to New Braunfels at that time, a lot of them didn't make it. The first 392 Germans to land on Texas soil, who had just been on a ship for two months, were met with nothing. They had bare necessities that they brought with them from Germany just because of the cost and everything. And then when they arrived and the wagons that they were expecting to be there weren't, they were digging out the sand and trying to make lean-tos. Of course, the weather down on the coast is not all that great anyway. The letters of one German immigrant, Bernhard Munken, gave his family back in his homeland and us a glimpse of the hardships and misery these travelers faced. My father was a wine grower on the banks of the Rhine River. The immigration fever, so prevalent at the time all through Germany, also struck my father, partly after going through a half dozen poor crop years and probably because the unrest of the year 1848 was already in the air. It wasn't long before the society's goals for New Germany started to unravel. Arriving on the scene near Galveston, John Moisenbach, a German baron who would renounce his nobility, recognized the fallacies of the society's plan. Von Moisebach looked at it with some knowledge. He already knew that sooner or later the society would go bankrupt financially. Prince Salms was sent by the society to oversee the colonization. He was one of the most active people and became the first commissioner in charge. Came to New Braunfels, bought the land, and finally arranged for people to settle there. He wrote a series of letters that went from informative reports to frantic pleas for help. It is impossible to make trips from the west to this place since the distance is great, from 130 to 140 miles. Most of the way is uninhabited and is frequented by Indians and marauders. They came over and they had a really rough time. This branch of the Lifeste family began when a village sheep herder, August, his wife Sophie, and their five children boarded a ship bound for Texas in 1852 and settled in Castell. We do have a preemption grant for August Lifeste, and this is a affidavit showing his application to settle on this land. Preemption was a homestead grant. You would go out, locate the land, settle upon it, fence it, farm it, make improvements for a period of three years, and then it is essentially yours. This is actually signed by August Lifesti. It's dated the eighth day of June of 1875. The Lifeste family set out on an overseas journey in search of a better life. Tragically, one of their five children didn't reach their new home. 21-year-old Johanna was one of many Germans to become sick, die, and was buried at sea. The lady died on the ship coming over as a young girl. And they were 40 individuals, and Castell is the only one that survived. Castell was one of the five towns that was built up there after uh, Moisebach signed a treaty with the uh, Comanche Indians. The society members had met a man named Fisher while he was in Germany recruiting immigrants. He advised that they buy the Fisher-Miller land grant as a location for the Germans to settle. The society agreed. Castell was built on the north side of the Llano River, which would have put it in what we refer to as the Miller-Fisher Grant. That was a land grant that was purchased by Prince Carl of Braunfels, who also founded the little town of New Braunfels. The government grants 
an enormous extent of remotely situated land in which the grantee receives, under the most stringent stipulations, much unfit and a little good land. Texas Ranger Colonel Jack Hayes had advised against the purchase not only because of its distance from the coast, but a chunk of the grant was Indian Territory. The treaty that you see over here on the mantle is a copy of the treaty that was made by Moisebach with the Comanche. It's the only treaty between the white man and the Indians that was not broken. What it did, it allowed the Germans to go up into their grant, and they did. They formed five little towns up there. So many of the Germans, though, because it was really a long way away, and uh, there were still Indians up there, a lot of them uh, did not go up and, and take advantage of the, of the land that they had been granted. But it also was a good tree for the Indians because they were able to come into the German settlements. I think uh, Moisebach, in the way he wrote that, is if they walk in the white way, they're welcome in the settlements. The Indians were hunter-gatherers, obviously, and so they would always have meat and bear fat, which was a very important thing. And the Germans were able to get the woolen blankets, and those are the things that the Indians liked to have. The tree made a big difference for the German Texans and for the Comanche Indians. The Germans said, well, now, how, would, how are these Indians going to know that we're, we're the good guys, we're the Germans? And it was decided that because the Indians have an affinity for pipe smoking and, uh, and the German men most all smoked a pipe, that if, if the Germans were smoking a pipe, they must be the good guys. And as the story went, one day a hunting party of Comanche rode up over the hill and the Germans are out working and everybody's looking and the Germans take out their pipe, they stoke up the pipes, the Indians wave, the Germans wave, and everybody goes to separate. Castell is located in Llano County, right along the river, what was classified as the Fisher Miller Colony Grant. There were numerous towns set up. Castell was one, Matina, places like Round Top, Industry. All these were little towns set up or established by the German settlers coming in. Haunted Texas went to Castell to visit the Lifeste ancestral family home to see for ourselves who might still be lingering. We discovered that after arriving in Texas, Sophie had four more children in what then was a log cabin. Sophie died at that home in 1883 at the age of 78. Through the years, other family members lived and died at the Lifeste family home. What really got my attention was when I turned it into a bed and breakfast. I had a college professor, a PhD from University of Houston. He came and stayed three days. And after the second day, he said, did you know there are ghosts in your house? I said, I've always suspected. He said, no, there are 26 of them. And they're all up around there. I've seen them. They're all your relatives, and they're all good ghosts. He said he'd been studying ghosts for 30 years. Today, Castell is the only remaining town of those established by the Society of German Noblemen. This is the original Lifeste homestead built by Edwin in 1924. Incorporated inside of these walls is the original log cabin and stone structure built by the first Germans to land on Texas soil. Today, the property belongs to Mark, his wife, and their two children. In the 80s, we had a flood, and it actually made it to the front porch of the house. And this sign got washed away all the way down the Llano River, through little, two little dams in Llano, through all of Lake LBJ, then through the big dam at LBJ and into Lake Marble Falls and ended up in a guy's yard. And this guy knew my dad and actually said, hey, Randy, uh, do you know an RC Lifeste? And he goes, yeah, that was my, my dad. He says, well, I found this sign. And my dad said, well, he got washed away in the flood. Yeah, this is the bell from the old church across the river, from the Methodist church over there. It's 
the original barn on the Lifefesty homestead. It's been there as long as the house has been here. This is the certificate from the Agriculture Commissioner that's saying that the Lifefesty ranch was founded in 1852. Those original pictures were up of my ancestors from the first ones that came here from Germany. They were on my wall. My wife was like, you know, they just always stared at you with a certain glare or stare. This is the house original icebox. They would actually go by wagon into land of the ice house, wrap it up in blankets and then ride back. And then you would put the block of ice here in the top. What was cool and interesting was that you still see glass jars and bottles and walls and nails that are all from the original people that were there. We just remodeled in the kitchen where that behind that mirror there, there's a old rock wall. And then when you guys crawl up in the attic, you'll actually be able to see the remnants of the old wall. Well, that rock wall was part of the original log cabin house. As we made our way through the house, we could see remnants of the family's past. We all experienced a very welcoming feeling. Possibly, it was not just the ancestors' belongings that remained from the past. The Haunted Texas team sat down in several rooms in the Lifeste home for about an hour, just after sunset, and remembered the family members that had long since passed. In the room where the antiques were stored, I said the name Carl, simultaneously a phone Iovelis spelled Carlton. What did it say? Carlton. Carlton. Carl. Oh, do we have Carlton? Carl. Nicely done. Is one of the, remember I said there's Carl here? So the um, EVP, the obelisk, just said Carlton. And maybe that was Carl, the Carl that we're trying to communicate with. Uh-oh. Just came on. What, what was it? Hold on. The equipment just turned itself on. That's a generator. Otherworldly energies can affect batteries, often taking the stored energy. So I only have 14 minutes left of video on your camera, Janine. Really? Really. And that had 129 minutes on it, the battery, so obviously the battery is draining very quickly. One of the most profound connections was a physical experience by audio engineer Dennis Foley. But I'm feeling a vibration. We're getting their attention. I'm feeling a vibration in the center of my body. I began to shake like jelly, right. but, but rippled. My name is Dennis Foley. I'm an audio recording specialist for Haunted Texas. We were in one of the kids' bedrooms and we were sitting on the sofa and we were talking about the history of the house, which is usually a provocative method to stir up activity. The couch felt like it was being shaken from the corner and vibrated. Is anybody else moving, shaking? I'm, I'm like the tip, the end of this couch is Shaking. Vibrations, while sitting on a bed or a couch, are an example of a common physical reaction experienced by those in a haunted house. Not a vibrating like an electrical vibrating, like someone was actually lifting the chair up and down. Our recording devices also picked up some compelling EVPs, electronic voice phenomena. An electronic voice phenomenon is basically a, a sound anomaly that shows up on a recording device after the recording has happened. So in other words, if you're out on the field and you're uh, doing some sound gathering, you may be asking questions to this spirit world 
and uh, uh, the sounds that you'll, you'll hear at the time don't necessarily show up until you go back to your studio or wherever you're reviewing your sound on the playback of the device. So it's just sort of these mysterious sounds that kind of appear on uh, recording devices. Class A EVP is clearly understood by anybody who listens to the playback. Class B EVP is something that is obviously human language, intelligible to a certain point, but not as easily translated. Class C EVP is a little bit more hard to discern, but it sounds like it's being generated by something intelligent. I saw light when I mentioned her name. We recorded this. Johanna remained kind of with the family as like a guardian angel. Johanna. 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 This is where the theory starts to work itself around the idea that if you speak to the nature of the place that you're at, if the place has a particular history and you start speaking in terms that it recognizes as historically accurate or relevant to their being, they will in kind respond to you and saying, yes, that's me. Johanna. We recorded other compelling EVPs like this one where it seems we walked into someone's conversation. The team was moving from that bedroom area to a back bedroom area. As we were passing through this foyer or this uh, hallway into the next bedroom, we picked up a very interesting EVP. Now, interestingly enough, the hallway was painted gray. So I'm wondering if they were, in some other dimensional sense, hearing us as we were walking down the hallway. I had really read a lot about the family. And I remember reading about how the family immigrated and they, they were some of the people that were abandoned in Indianola and had to walk to Castell. But of all the brothers and sisters, one didn't make it. And it was Joanna. When she was traveling over by boat to Texas, she had passed away. But there is lore about her spirit um, uh, still manifesting in the house. So when we, in fact, were talking about this person, she responded. Johanna. I wondered if her spirit had stayed with one of her family members, much like a guardian angel. Still, Johanna died on the voyage and never lived in the Lefeste family home. Could it be possible that her spirit stayed with the family? To learn more about the nature and tendencies of spirits, we visited Russell Forsyth, a medium who focuses on angel spiritual guidance and healing. If you travel down to indigenous cultures in South America and you were to say, hey, I saw a ghost and I saw your ancestor walking in the village, they would look at you and say, why wouldn't they be here in our village? It's also believed and been my experience that when a child dies, they stay very close to their family and they stay very close to their mother. And it's because that's where they feel safe. A lot of times what's happening with our deceased loved ones is they are protecting us and guarding us against what they might be able to see coming that we don't see. And that's why we feel like they're guardian angels because they are guarding us and they are protecting us. It may also be that the entire family is there. Johanna's the one that is the most able to show herself and to communicate. The society only sponsored 7,000 people the, for the protection. But one of the things they started was organized settlements. And after that, many, many people from different parts of Germany came to Texas because they heard the reports 
that after a few years you can still do well over here. But it was a very arduous journey for these people to come in. Many lost their lives, but through sheer determination, you know, many of these settlers, they did come in and establish a, a strong foothold and, and made a cultural difference here in Texas. I've heard hundreds of stories of people who have lost a grandparent, a parent, or even a friend and still feel like they remain close by, much like the Lifeveste family. A loved one can attach themselves to someone much like Johanna. It's often said that if you lose a child, you gain a guardian angel.